I want to talk to you tonight on the topic of unmet expectations. And this is um, along the same lines as what we, what we taught on Sunday, but uh, approaching the same issue from a little bit different angle. As you may recall, Sunday we talked about broken windows, how we all have a worldview. We have a, a certain way that we view the world, and because of the windows we see it through, sometimes we don't see the whole picture. And God sometimes seems to delight in breaking our windows to uh, help us see the world differently. And sometimes our windows get broken for other reasons as well. But uh, regardless, we have a simple choice that when our windows get broken, we can either, like the rich young ruler, walk away from Jesus, or we can choose to stay with him, follow him. And it's a very, very simple choice. So tonight, I want to dig in just a little bit deeper into that idea and kind of look at the anatomy of broken windows or unmet expectations. We sometimes think that if God doesn't do it the way we expect, He's let us down. Come on now, right? And it's okay to admit sometimes that we are disappointed and that we're disillusioned. I'm telling you, our faith has got to be real, and real faith is messy. Real faith sometimes has to deal with unmet expectations. Look at John the Baptist, for example, as he, was, as he was the forerunner of Christ and did so much to set the stage for Christ and even handed his disciples over to him saying, he must increase and I must decrease. In one of his darkest hours shortly before his martyrdom, he sent his own disciples, remaining disciples to Jesus to ask him, are you really the one or should we look for somebody else? He was that disillusioned. Now, in our neat little tidy my, uh, theology, we, ha- we don't often make room for that kind of ambiguity or those kinds of questions. But real faith is messy. And so we have to be prepared for the fact that sometimes our expectations are not going to be met. And that's not because God let us down. It's because many times our expectations are not based upon what God had originally said, but on what we have projected onto God that we want to see happen. Right? So, The crucifixion of Christ, his arrest and crucifixion and death actually is a good example of this as far as the disciples are concerned, in particular, the apostle Peter. In Luke chapter 22, verse 14, it says, When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. This is the Passover meal. He said to them, (coughs) excuse me, he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Notice the phrases, fulfillment in the kingdom of God and until the kingdom of God comes. We hear those phrases... We're, t- we're typically, in nice North American 21st century Pentecostalism, we're thinking of the rapture, we're thinking of the wedding supper of the Lamb, we're looking at when we get to all go to glory and be with Jesus, and that's when we will uh, then we'll take Passover with Him again, and He'll, he'll, uh, he'll not abstain any longer, is when we are with Him in heaven. And I would say that's probably accurate theologically. 
But let's back up for a second and let's ask ourselves, what did the disciples interpret this to mean? Do you think they interpreted it the same way we're interpreting it? I don't think so because we have the rest of Scripture to inform our understanding and we have 2,000 years of studying the Scriptures. These guys are hearing this for the first time and Jesus is still combating the notion with them that, that, that the Messiah is going to come in and overthrow the Roman government and put the Jews back in political power. He's been combating that idea over and over again, and the disciples still in their thick-headedness are not getting it. And so when Jesus says, I will not take the, this cup again until, the, <coughs> until it is fulfilled <coughs> in the kingdom of God, they're thinking, okay, this is good. We're getting close to... Uh, the fulfillment here, we're getting close to the Messiah <coughs> coming and taking the throne back over. So they're looking at, you know, maybe 30 days or a couple of months or maybe a year. They're looking at things going up and improving in the short term. So they have expected Jesus to establish this kingdom on earth that would end Roman oppression of the Jews but there's this one little thing that Jesus says right at the beginning that kind of raises a question. He said, I've eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Before I suffer. What's he talking about? Before the night is over, he will be arrested. By the weekend, he will be dead. This was not the kingdom that Christ's followers expected. Their king suffering and dying a horrible death as a criminal on a Roman cross. And so the disciples are left in shock asking why. And it left them wondering, like John the Baptist, whether their faith had been misplaced. Wait a minute, he talked about the fulfillment of the kingdom of God and now he's dead. So easy to relate to these guys. How many of us have built our hopes and our expectations up and prayed and believed God for something only to watch our hopes die a painful death? How many of us have felt that God has somehow let us down? Think about the word disappointment for a second. Well, I'm just disappointed. I'm so disappointed and God didn't come through the way I thought He should. But think about the anatomy of that word disappointed. We think of the calling of God and that, is, that calling is an appointment. We are appointed to a task or to a mission. And to be disappointed in our minds means that we are, that, that appointment is taken off. That, that we have, just like you dismount a horse, you've been disappointed from this position. Internally, that's what's going on in our minds. Like, okay, I have been removed from this expectation. Those may be our feelings. But can I tell you, in truth... The disciples did not realize that God had not let them down, that God had not really disappointed them, but that God did not meet their expectations simply because He had something better in mind for them. And when God doesn't meet our expectations, it's because He has something in mind that will surpass our expectations. The problem is that our agenda doesn't line up with God's agenda. 
And when that happens, we respond incorrectly and we lose out on what God wants to do in our lives. I believe that we will all experience disappointment. We will all experience unmet expectations. Well, Pastor, you should be more positive. I'm positive. You're going to be disappointed. We live in a fallen world, and it's just part of the gig. So, Peter, rather, is probably the most vocal and upfront of the disciples with this expectation that he has. And, and then Jesus is arrested. And they begin to suffer a little bit of question. Wait a minute. This is what is this what Jesus really is supposed to be doing? Are, are we really in the right place here? I mean, we followed him because we thought he was the Messiah. Is he really the Messiah? Now, what if you watch the progression here with Peter? You can see how this manifests when things go wrong. These, these are evidences of false expectations. When we get our expectations placed incorrectly. The first thing that happens when we have false expectations and they're manifested is distraction. Distraction. In verse 24 of our text, it says that a dispute also arose, arose among them as to which of them was considered to be greatest. Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest and the one who rules like the one who serves. And so watch this. They've got this idea of Jesus as a military conqueror. So now the disciples, they're jockeying for position. Well, I'm going to be sitting at his right hand. I'm his favorite. John is like, well, I'm the one he loves, you know. Peter's, you know, Peter's like, well, I'm better than you guys at everything, so I mean, I'm going to be out front. Matthew says, well, I know how to handle money, so, you know. And so, I mean, there's all this jockeying for position, and there's, there's um, this idea that one has to work harder to make himself noticed so that he can, he can lord over the rest of them. And what they don't realize here is that they've missed the point entirely. They are distracted because of their false expectations, because the real issue isn't promotion, but it's servanthood. These guys were seeking the wrong things. They were looking for power. How often do we fall into this trap? How often do we fall in this trap of wanting to promote ourselves, wanting to enjoy the spotlight? When, what Jesus is calling us to do is say, look, if you want to be great, you must be the servant of all. So instead of looking for which one could sit at Jesus' right hand, they should have been looking for an opportunity to serve. They should have been saying, no, I'm going to wash his feet. No, I'm going to wash his feet. They were distracted and they were focused on the wrong things because they had false expectations. So it begins with distractions, and then after distractions comes distance. In verse 54, skip on down there, it says, Then seizing Jesus, they led him away and took him into the house of the high priest. And notice this, Peter followed at a distance. So he was still following Jesus, but he didn't necessarily want anyone to associate him with Jesus. 
And this is what happens to many of us when we have false expectations and unmet expectations. We get distracted easily. We start <clears throat> looking for some way to medicate the pain and the disappointment. And little by little, we begin to follow Jesus a little bit further back. We, we walk away from the intimacy that we had in Christ. And, and we're still following Him. I'm not renouncing my faith. I'm not turning my back on Jesus. But I'm just not following Him as closely as I once did. I can still see Him out in the distance. And so I'm still going in the right direction. But I'm letting just a little bit of distance there because we're not exactly on speaking terms right now. Can you identify with that? And we don't want to admit that, do we? You've heard me say this many times that we sometimes think it's that we shouldn't admit it if we're angry at God. And the truth is, God already knows when we're angry, and so it's better just to be honest with it. God is secure enough in His Godhood to handle our anger. And when we try to suppress that anger and pretend it's not there, not only does it lead to hypocrisy, but it just begins to, cor- to eat away, to corrupt our innermost being. <coughs> so it goes from distractions to distance. <coughs> Excuse me, I'm so sorry. To disownment. Next verse, verse 55. And when some there had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter sat down with them. A servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight. She looked closely at him and said, This man was with him, but he denied it. Woman, I do not know him, he said. And so, if we follow, listen, if we follow Jesus at a distance long enough, we will cease to associate ourselves with him. We, and understand, he, in his heart anyway, he wasn't renouncing Jesus. At least he didn't perceive himself as renouncing Jesus. He was simply trying not to be associated with Jesus because he didn't want to deal with all of that. And so he was lying and saying, I, I don't know him. And that's what we do many times. We don't exactly consciously deny our faith, but, but we, we, we simply try to just kind of hide it because, you know, I don't, I don't want anybody to know that about me. I don't want to deal with spiritual things. I just want to kind of pretend like everything is just normal in my life right now. But even when we are trying to hide that and just kind of brush over it, denying it on the surface, we are, as, just as Peter did, beginning to deny that we are associated with him. It is a walking away from our association with him. So we go from distractions, distance, disownment, and then finally disillusionment. In verse 62, you know the story. The rooster crows. Jesus looks at him. He remembers that that very night Jesus had predicted to him that he would deny him three times, and he did it. He realizes what he's done. And in verse 62, it says, Peter went outside and he wept bitterly. He was disillusioned with himself. He felt like he had messed up so bad there was no hope. In John's Gospel, in chapter 21, we read a few days later where the disciples are out on the beach one morning and Peter says he was, he's going to go fishing. We'll look at that text in John 21.3. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, that they, and that night, but that night they caught nothing. I said it was morning, it was actually night. 
And so um, we have to understand that this is not this is not like us say, well, I think I'll go fishing. You know, and we pull the boat out and we go and just have a nice relaxing day. It's not what Peter was doing. Peter was a fisherman by trade. He was fishing the day he met Jesus and abandoned his, his boats and his nets to follow Jesus, walked away from all of it. So when he stands up with his disciples and says, I'm going out to fish, what he's really saying is, I'm done. I can't do this. I've done messed this up too bad. I'm just going back to the boats. I'm going to go back to the way it was. Now, Peter is a natural leader, and so what happens when he says this, the disciples say, yeah, we'll go with you. Let's just go. And so this is not just a leisurely <coughs> fishing expedition. These are, this is disciples asking themselves, can they even do this anymore? And so they went from distractions to uh, distance to um, denial to disillusionment. Disillusionment with ourselves usually gets turned into being offended at God. If we get disillusioned enough with ourselves, sooner or later that anger will begin to turn Godward. What are some causes for getting offended at God? <clears throat> Three things that are undesired. <clears throat> Number one, we may have an undesired harvest. In Galatians 6, 7, it says, Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Think about that statement. God cannot be mocked. To think that we can sow and not face the consequences is to mock God. What about grace? Forgiveness is not the issue. Forgiveness is not the issue at all. The issue is whatever seed we put in the ground, that's the harvest we're going to produce. Proverbs 22.8 says it like this, He who sows wickedness reaps sorrow. It's like we're sowing our wild oats and praying for crop failure. It's like the man that commits a crime, can he be forgiven? Absolutely he can. But is he still going to jail? Absolutely he is. And it's not a matter of, well, God didn't forgive him or God didn't accept him. It's not an issue at all. It's a matter of God cannot be mocked and he's going to reap exactly what he has sown. And so we sometimes get that undesired harvest and we want to blame God for it. But the truth of the matter is we brought it on ourselves by the decisions that we've made. The second thing that causes us to be offended at God is an undesired history. Same verse. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. We sometimes blame God for things that God didn't do. God didn't cause someone's spouse to leave them. God didn't cause whatever issue that you may be dealing with. Let's talk about like if your spouse left you. We say, well, God, why did you let him do that? Why did you let her do that? Think about it. Do we really want God to control our actions? I mean, that's kind of offensive to, to think, well, God, okay, so you're going to treat me like a puppet. You're going to control my actions. And yet we sometimes want God to, to control our spouse's actions or our father's actions, mother's, children, whatever. 
God gave us free will, and, and we reap the consequences of our choices. So, <clears throat> I mean, God, I wrote this down here, I didn't say this, but God hasn't made you do what your wife prayed that you would do, right? Just ask her, she'll tell you, <laughs> right? The third reason we get offended at God is an undesired heading. In John 21, verse 18, as Jesus is restoring Peter and bringing him back into alignment with his will, he says to Peter, I tell you the truth, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. How would you like that word from God? I mean, we love it when prophetic people come and say, God's going to bless you. God's going to give you increase and all that. Jesus prophesied to Peter saying, yeah, you went where you wanted when you were younger, but when you're older, people are going to dress you the way you don't want to be dressed. They're going to stretch out your hands and you're going to glorify my name. Then he says, you follow me. Yay, God. And sometimes, you know, we sometimes think that where God has called us, there's always, it's always going to be easy. But I can assure you that many times where God calls us, it is never going to be easy. There'll be moments, there'll be high, there'll be high points, there'll be times of blessing, but there will also be times of heartache and times of sorrow. Because when we are on the, on, on, the, on the path that God has for us, we are taking the light of the kingdom and brushing up against the darkness. We are invading the darkness. And where light and darkness meet, there is often chaos. It's like a thunderstorm when two uh, air systems bump into each other. That's when you get thunderstorms. And so you've got the systems of darkness and you've got the systems of light. And where they meet... That's where things happen. In fact, that's where you usually see miracles. This is one of the reasons why we see so many miracles in so many third world countries is because they are so uh, covered in the darkness of the, of the enemy. When the kingdom of God advances into those areas, miracles just happen. And the darker America gets, the more we, I believe we'll see the miraculous here. So why, why does that bother us? Well, to be blunt, it's a sense of entitlement. Well, God, I, I, des- I deserve better than that. You know, I, I don't deserve to have to go through that. I mean, I mean, I've done my dues, right? And when we have a sense of entitlement, it leads us to comparison, which is what Peter did. In verse 20, he's Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who leaned back against Jesus at the supper and said, Lord, who's going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Those five words can change your life and change your perspective. What is that to you? You follow me. There is no room for comparison. In the kingdom of God. The path that God has for you is different than the path He has for anybody else. 
And whatever path He has for you is a path through which you can glorify His name just as Peter did. History tells us, we don't know this for sure, but history and tradition tells us tell us that uh, when Peter was crucified, he did die exactly the way Jesus said he was crucified. But, the, but tradition tells us that when he saw the cross, he asked the guards to turn him upside down, saying that he was not worthy to die the same death his Savior had died. This same guy's like, well, what about him? The same guy later saw it as an honor to even die the same type of death and wasn't worthy of dying that type of death. So this is the key. When we don't understand what's going on, when life doesn't make sense, when it's not fair, when we lose our way and things don't make sense, it's very simple. It's just like I said Sunday, follow Jesus. It's so simplistic. Well, just follow Jesus. I get it. It sounds simplistic. I get that doesn't provide all of the answers, but that's where it begins. We determine in our hearts that no matter what, no matter what happens with anybody else, no matter the outcome in my own life, I'm going to follow Jesus. So back to the original question then, when when God doesn't meet our expectations, what is he up to? We sometimes think like the disciples. Well, he's wanting to bring a revolution. But Jesus wasn't working to bring a revolution. He was working to bring a resurrection. When God doesn't meet our expectations, it's because we don't understand his agenda. It's because he has something better for us. We all know this verse. This is one of those refrigerator magnet verses, Romans 8, 28. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. So we have to ask ourselves a very simple but very complicated question. Do we believe this? When all of hell is breaking loose in our lives, when we don't understand what is happening, when we are disillusioned and disappointed and confused and hurting, do we stand on this verse or not? And we have to understand that the way this is written in the King James Version, it says all things work together for good. Um, It's a little bit more passive, but in the Greek, it's more like what's in the NIV here. We know that in all things, God works for the good. Now, we have to understand it doesn't mean that God did all the things, you know? All the things He's working in, He didn't do all the things. But He's at work in all the things. Even what the enemy means for your destruction, God is at work in the things. And God will work in the things in order to benefit you, the good of those who love Him, (coughs) those who have been called according to His purpose. So, whatever the enemy has brought to you, whatever the doctors have told you, whatever the circumstances are, whatever, whatever the questions may be lingering in front of your face right now, we can stand on this word that somehow, in the midst of all of it, God is at work and He will work it to your benefit and to His glory. That's what was happening here. These, could you imagine any more disillusionment than what the disciples experienced? 
that Sunday morning, they're locked away in a room for fear of being arrested and executed, just like Jesus was. And in Matthew 28, verse 2, it says, There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven, and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The angel, verse 5, said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. The disciples wanted a revolution. They wanted Jesus to sit on a throne and overturn the Roman Empire. Jesus wanted a resurrection. He wasn't worried about political affinities and kingdoms that rise and fall. He wanted to change something for eternity. The disciples essentially wanted Jesus to to overthrow the Roman government because they wanted an easier life. And so they were disappointed that he he didn't provide that for them. But Jesus wasn't interested in giving them an easier life. He wanted to give them eternal life. So, in conclusion, there are areas in each of our lives, I would dare say, that there are certain unmet expectations, certain disappointments, areas where we feel like we're disconnected from what God had for us. And if that's where you are tonight, God is at work in that. In the meantime, in the, in the time between Friday afternoon and Sunday morning, between crucifixion and resurrection, in that waiting time, in those dark times, we have to guard against the, the D's that I mentioned. Distraction, distance, denial, and disillusionment. We have to avoid walking down those paths And and that's not to say that Jesus won't come and restore you just like he did Peter, but I'm telling you, it's so much better if you never let that distance creep up on you. It's so much better if you don't let disillusionment take root in you. And somehow in the midst of that unmet expectation, there is something in our lives that that God is at work in that we can't yet see because we're missing a valuable piece of the information about what God's up to. But whatever it is that God is up to is so much better than what you were hoping for. So I would just simply give you the same command that Jesus gave to Peter. You follow me. Father, I just want to pray for anybody here tonight that in their lives they're in need of a resurrection. Anyone here that we've missed your agenda or that we're lacking an understanding of what you're up to, help us, God, to not follow at a distance. Help us to not be distracted or deny you or be disillusioned. Help us, Lord, to simply trust that you're bringing a resurrection in our lives. I pray, God, for your peace to guard us, that we would walk in faith knowing that in all things we know that you're at work for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.